and it really starts to get on my nerves after a while. It's going to be okay. They've got this trump card they're going to play. Everything's going to be just fine. Meanwhile, everybody just goes along. Not sure what we could do, but... So there's a trump card now that's apparently going to be played. Is that it? That's it. Are you not with it? <laughs> uh, well, no, I, I guess I wasn't aware of any kind of a trump card. I, I took a look uh, here just before logging in and starting the fellowship that Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision. I took a look at the dissenters. I wanted to see what the dissenters were. Um, uh, this is about as lame as you can get. Uh, there are two dissenting opinions, Mundy and Saylor. Saylor contended that there wasn't any need for his court to intervene in the case since the vote counting is nearly done, and then quoting him, moreover, the legislature already is signaling that there will be an intense after-action review of the no-excuse mail-in voting regime, which is in its infancy in Pennsylvania, and quote, he wrote. Okay, so we have the dissenting opinion basically saying, well, I don't see any reason we should even intervene at all because the vote counting is nearly done. Well, wait a minute, you idiot. The purpose for your supposed decision would be to determine whether or not the vote counting needs to stop and a correction in the vote counting needs to be done. <laughs> so uh, that's the first dissenting opinion, which makes no sense at all. And then, of course, the idea that the legislature, which, as I said to everybody a couple weeks ago, the the legal argument has to be that these states did not go through the process of the legislature in order to make rules changes. And that has to be the argument going in. I have no idea what the Trump uh, legal team is doing, but if that's not the argument, then they are wasting time and they have somebody on their legal team that is setting them up for defeat. Um, There is a legal... Uh, challenge in Georgia by Lynn Wood, and he has the correct argument. And the correct argument is there is a violation of due process. There is a violation of uh, constitutional requirement with regards to the state legislators setting the parameters for voting. If it did not, or if it violated those parameters set by the state legislature in any way, then it has unconstitutionally disenfranchised voters uh, or done something else uh, which has modified voters' uh, results. So um, he's he's got the argument correct in in Georgia, however, he needs more than Georgia to actually win uh, President Trump. So um, once again, um, I've said this so many times in my lifetime from what I've learned about the legal arena. If you go in there with a failed argument and you don't have enough moxie and intelligence about 
your legal standing, your position, your argument, and so forth, uh, then you really are just, you know, spending money on somebody giving you legal advice that has not your best interest in mind because if the argument isn't framed correct going in, it's very easy for these courts to just deny it. And it was easy to deny because the argument was incorrect going in. And they will never tell you that. So... I don't know what it is that that you're hearing there or or what the 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 Trump bullet is or whatever you called it there but oh, uh, the I, the thing I'm hearing is the army has captured the server in Germany. US yeah, military. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, to, to yeah. me I see that and I'm thinking to myself some guy wearing a Chicago bear it's all backwards and he's got all these answers and nobody else knows about it but him yeah no that was me too when i sent that link to you too i mean uh, there's there's a host of of wrong and incorrect things in that potential uh, uh story there so no it's uh yeah um you know you and I have complained about this before, and that is where in the world is this uh, attorney general and and yeah, there's just there's just nothing you know the FBI director. I mean, huh? where boy, are they? you can you you can get a federal investigation or an FBI investigation for. Uh, blowing your nose uh in a federal building i i would almost think but um certainly if you blew it and then you wiped your hand on the wall because somebody might think that you're wiping something on the wall <laughs> that is a uh, a dangerous substance that's going to cause the walls to come crumbling down so uh it's amazing it is amazing good evening isaac Hi guys. Uh, well, so no, I don't know. Um, like I say, Georgia is the uh, is the is the only one that I'm seeing that has the legal argument correct. I don't, however, believe that that Georgia, even Georgia and Pennsylvania, I don't see that either one of those would if he were to successfully get both of those as i recall the the tallies uh, that wouldn't be enough to get him over the hump anyway seems to me it's like 16 in georgia and 20 maybe in pennsylvania or a comparable amount so well, it's supposed to uh, all be ruled invalid yep yep uh, i mean you know i i gotta tell you um this lady that represented um, General Flynn in that trumped-up charge, um, is it Sandy? I'm just think of that she's, now. She's really good. So is that Lynn guy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she laid out one of her arguments I caught the other day about having an affidavit from a guy 
that I assumed was a guy from Venezuela, but maybe I misunderstood the way it was being relayed. Uh, he at least worked on the software or is aware of it or something and had some unique understanding to the process in Venezuela and, and knows firsthand that they used it to cheat. I don't know how that really helps here. You know what I mean? Because any, any court is going to look at these arguments and say, well, what were you doing? For example, one of the things that's going to be, that's going to have to come out there are three Democrats that were challenging some things regarding this Dominion software as long as three or four years ago. So anybody with any, you know, any court is going to look at these arguments that are coming through now and they're going to say, where have you been? Um, Why have you not, you know, made challenges to this before the election? And so then that's going to fall right on, you know, Republicans and and party leaders and all the rest of that as to give the court a scapegoat to to pin it on. So, um, yeah, these these potential legal challenges to me, I'm very dubious of legal challenges. You guys know that. Um, So I'm not I'm not getting all flowery and and about the whole deal at all so it remains to be seen i mean you know december 15th uh, i think is pretty much a deadline or maybe the 12th is kind of a deadline for a lot of them to have certified by so i mean that is you know a good four weeks away but you know things this time of year don't move very fast in most uh corners of of bureaucracy so um, I, I guess I'm not sure, you know, who's going to do what that's going to hit the scale. I haven't seen anything credible, okay? By credible, what I mean is usable or practical or going to change anything. And what really bothers me is we were taught about this, Trump told about this months before the election, did nothing, and did nothing and expected to overcome it. And then then I hear these people, oh, he set them up for a trap. He's got all the goods on. He put the, the, the mark on the ballot and all this bull it's just consp- and then QAnon over and over QAnon they still they believe in this crap Q's got it got it all handled yep well you know what I, I hope I'm wrong but I got a feeling I'm not Well, um, where would you start as president? You would start with your attorney general. That's where you would start the process. If you felt like you are the if if you are the chief executive of a company, and there is a problem within the company, 
you have divisions within your company that are commissioned to do certain things, and those things that they are commissioned to do, they do at your discretion or authority as the chief executive. And if they do not do and are not doing and have not started once that request or directive has been given, so the question is, was the directive given? Is the directive being given? I I truly don't believe that I think that they have made this president believe that he has no authority to have this FBI, this attorney general, or anybody. He he apparently is gun-shy into believing that he has no authority to direct them to do a single thing for fear he will be, oh, it's, you know, like they've already accused him. Oh, he's got his FBI minions or his whatever cronies, uh, you know, Bill Barr doing his his bidding is that one of the first things that they came out with when he appointed Barr and all of that good stuff. And it just, there's just, there, there's, I'm not seeing that there's been any directive. You would hear a headline that says, Trump has ordered the FBI to investigate. Trump has ordered the Department of Homeland Security to do such and such. You know, I, there's there's no directive. As the chief executive officer of the United States federal machine, I have not seen him exercise the authority that he has to direct these agencies to do or not to do. Where am I going wrong? I've not heard anything. Nothing. But I won the race. That's what he said. All I can say is, well, you better better tell the rest of the people that. It doesn't well, appear like he's had the military on his side at all, the, the higher-ups. Remember the ones he yeah. picked? Had all oh, yeah. I mean, they obviously wanted that General Flynn out of there, so whatever whatever he was bound to do, um, maybe it was the Biden-China thing that was going to, you know, become exposed if if Flynn was there and they needed to get him tarred and feathered and tarnished um, uh, and what what military brass that he still has um, in his corner that would be doing anything behind the scenes uh, I have no idea but but you know Judy and I were talking about this and Money. You know, uh-huh. money is is an interesting motivator. And I try to share with people all the time 
about this one little scenario or this little example that I try to use as it pertains. You see, the idea that everybody, you know, is so uh, disgusted with this, um, you know, multinational corporate status and multinational corporate, you know, economic system, drudgery, whatever they want to refer to it. And the bottom line is that those companies are all those companies that everybody has their 5013Bs and their 401s and their whatever alphabet numbering system group of, of investment vehicles that are invested in. And so for all the hatred, they don't even understand how they're involved in participating in their own destruction and perpetuating the multinationals that they claim to hate. Because they don't care where that's coming from. They just know that they've got money that they've decided to set aside and go into this little, you know, tax, you know, freedom vehicle or whatever. And what happens in the end is that they make money. They don't know where the money comes from. They don't know that there's a higher cost on the toilet paper and a higher cost on the widget in order to make that 10% return that they want to see over the long haul of 20 years having their money out there uh, shuffling around from company to company to company to company. They just want to know that that 20000 was turned into 200000 and that's the bottom line. And they don't care. And yet, they will complain about what's happening to them. And when you try to explain that to them, I have, do it routinely, I have such mixed reactions, most of the reactions are really of no regard to what I have just tried to share with them. I have never had anybody say to me, you know what? I have never had it put to me that way, and I'm going to see what I can do to withdraw from these programs with as little penalty upon myself as I can possibly do it. I have never had one person do that. So when you think about money and you think about what's going on in this system right now, um, I, I would like to take us back uh 250 years, maybe even 300 years, to the mid-1700s. <clears throat> Once again, the people who made up the British East India Tea Company were who? Well, glad you asked. Let me tell you. They were politicians. They were the ruling class. These people that were the ruling class in Britain were invested in these various companies and so forth, and they saw no conflict of interest with them at all. In fact, that was probably even a foreign concept back then. I don't have enough 
historical knowledge of British law and so forth to be able to unequivocally state it, but let's just suffice it to be said that it is a fact and it is true that those people were invested in those organizations. And we know that because they sent people over here on ships as corporate entities to carry out their will, wishes, and desires once reaching the North American shores, whether it was trade advantages, whether it was um, minerals and other things that could be carried back and sold for profits or gains. Um, This is merchandising. This is quote-unquote capitalism, if you will. And the people who were involved in it were never the peasants. They were always the people with means, money, power, and position. So why should it surprise us at all that we have the same kind of government today? And when you look around at all of the people who've got their tentacles, you know, in the door in various ways, With this organization, that organization, this foreign entity, that foreign entity, and everything else, it really, there's nothing new under the sun. And these people don't get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier because they have a $100,000 a year salary, give or take. This is why in the book of Samuel, you probably have the situation that we had going to 1 Samuel chapter 8. It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now, the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second, uh, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. His sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, took bribes, and perverted judgment. This is not hard to understand, is it? No. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and said unto him, Behold, you're old, your sons don't walk in your ways, make us a king to judge us like the nations. Which is the reason why a couple of weeks ago after this you know, election fiasco, I thought it was important, I guess it was just last week, I thought it was important that I try to bring us back to some understanding and semblance of uh, relation with the law of God, the application, you know, we basically went into it and showed that from the Old Testament to the New, uh, God's laws were still to be applied in the land and made the reference that make us a king to judge, rule, or lead us like all the nations is the same thing as make us a constitution to judge us, lead us, and rule us. Those two things are exactly equal to each other. Well, I've, I've got a better 
uh, another analogy. Make us another God because this one isn't working. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, and, now, and point, in my Bible. Us, yeah, appoint us another God to judge us like the other nations. You could easily plug that word in there and it would apply. And another thing that would apply is we don't like our God anymore. Our God's a failure. And that's straight out of the garden, isn't it? Absolutely. The lie just never changes. Right. The Lord said unto Samuel, verse 7, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, meaning Samuel, but they have rejected me, meaning Yahweh, that I should not reign over them. And I hate to keep going back to this because I know that we get this and we understand this, um, but unfortunately, those that we're talking to, associating with, family, friends, uh, business associates, uh, work associates, it's the same situation that this is not understood. Not only not understood, it just is the furthest thing from their mind because it's never been taught to them. So uh, I guess the point I was deriving or driving at here was that the money situation um, every one of these politicians out here have got some stake in something somewhere, and that is their motivating factor. Whether it's Marco Rubio or you know one of these other you know Rhino Republicans as they're often referred to. We have no idea what all of their business dealings are, but every one of those people in the good old boys club knows, and they know that you can't have your finger in the pie this way. If you say anything against the pie, we're going to come and stick your eyes out because you just don't do that. And this is the good old boys system. And they're all in it, and they reject God ruling over them, and they're corrupted to the cores. Now, maybe that's not every single one of them, but it is probably 98.75% of them at least. So it's not a pretty thing, and I don't have, you know, better answers, and I don't have, you know, the kumbaya moment that I can give to everybody, because the reality is history repeats itself, and man is corrupt, allows himself to be corrupted by the lust of his eyes, the lust of his flesh, and the pride of life. 
Yeah, let's go on here to 18. After after the people got what they want and the king did all those things, God said, then you, the Israelites, will cry out in that day, which could very well be the day we're in right now, because of your king whom you chose for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. There you have it. And when it says the Lord will answer you, don't you think that means, when it says the Lord will not answer you, don't you think that means the Lord will not answer you? Yeah, and then, you know, the, the thing that to me just, just, you know, you put it in the parent-child relationship. And then you say to the children, you say, well, look, all right, I'll help you out. I'll try to choose you your first king. And unfortunately, I got to choose from among you guys. Uh-huh. But but I'll do my I'll do my level best to to choose choose a king for you. Uh-huh. And then what is it? I, I forget what is it? Is it is it a chapter later or is it just a few verses later? He just a few verses. Him. Yeah, he, he repented that God that he made Saul king. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know it's like man you guys want me to do this stuff I'm going to try to choose the best for you and then when he goes against me even though I choose him and I'm expecting that because I've chosen him he's going to look at me and say you know I should follow the guy that chose me in his directives and his advice and and his ways and his counsel, but then he turns around and rejects the advice and the counsel and so forth and does his own thing. And then you've got to be sitting there scratching your head saying, you know, what do you want me to do? And your children are standing there going, well, you're the one who did it. You made us this king. No, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute. You're the one who told me to make you a king. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That that's right. You d- you did do that, didn't you? We did do that, didn't we? Well, now what are we going to do? Well, you're going to live with your decision. Just it's just amazing, isn't it? Uh huh. And. And verse 9, now then listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of this ruler who will reign over them. So he actually forewarns them. Here's what's going to happen with this loser. And Samuel was a loser. And the first thing he does is takes your sons. Then he takes your land. Then he makes your 
people build weapons of war. Then he gets your daughters. Then he gets your fields and all the produce, everything you've done. Then he gets a tenth of this and a tenth of that to give to his servants. And then you start crying out and going, this isn't fair. This isn't what we wanted. And then and then he says, well, okay. then he says, well, wait, okay, you can invest in in all of my adventures, and you can benefit from them. Go ahead. Well, he says, you chose him for yourself. So, who's to blame? Well, you got to think not everybody did this. You just got to believe that. There were some that said this is a bad idea. Turn to the Lord. Can we not assume that some of them did not do this? I mean, Samuel didn't. Did he? He didn't fall for it. So, I mean, that doesn't mean they didn't have to go through it, does it? But I'm assuming God was with them, the ones that 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 worship God. His promises, He's not going to renege, is He? No. But I think when we're reading this, we're speaking in in broad terms. In other words, this is the way most of them wanted it. So. Yeah, you were I, think gonna, I would have. You were, go ahead. Yeah, I would have to agree that uh, we don't have anything in the record that says they they weren't all on board with it. Um, yeah. You know, it, it does say the you know the elders, the leaders. Uh, it says uh, uh, the elders of Israel. So you mm-hmm. would assume that by that statement it was those who were heads of the tribes and probably was again, a Doug Nelson out there somewhere yeah once again remember just because you have elders appointed does not mean that they will always act in your best interests either right that's a good example right there isn't it it is. Well, and you were so going to... It should be no surprise to us. Go ahead. You were going to expound on the list tonight, weren't you? Well, yeah, I thought we should try to close up the loop on the Old Testament. And um, uh, I had uh, sent that, well, of course, in our last, fellowship where we were dealing with the doctrine of the seed liner and the closet seed liner as I'm referring to them which is most of the Judeo-Christian church world the closet seed liners and we were addressing the Old Testament as it pertains to the doctrine and we had not yet engaged the New Testament I stayed specifically within the Old Testament as much as possible we did have 
some references to New Testament scriptures from time to time throughout that uh, series of messages. But as a final and concluding one, I have, you know, put together, and Jeremiah was working on them fervently uh, to get them ready for the fellowship that we did two weeks ago, which was, uh, I don't know, part eight, part nine, or whatever it was in the series. And we just did not have it together. And I thought it would be nice to put this into this audio um, so that it was available. So for those that are listening to the audio, um, we do have that list of a number of things that I began to think about as I studied this doctrine. And um, we've got it available when you hit the download button um, on the download page. You will see that there's an attachment or a document that is available with this particular fellowship. And by clicking on it, you'll be able to either download that document or view it on your computer screen. So I will put that out for everybody that is downloading audios and give that information at this time. So um, we thought, I thought, I guess, that it would be a good idea to go over it because somebody may not understand a particular thought that I had on one or more of them and may even have some contention with one or more of them with me. And I don't know how many here fellowshipping this evening will have any specific contention, but um, uh, it was there and is being provided as, as a potential guide to the way I am looking at things as I do my studies. And one of those things is to start asking what I'm being required to believe if I'm to believe a particular doctrine, that whether it's coming from the church world or whether it's coming from somebody else who is claiming to be diligently studying a particular part of Scripture and a particular doctrine, um, which you know may be agreed with or disagreed with. And so that's the way I've been approaching it. Um, whether doctrines, parables, allegories, visions, uh, prophecies, metaphors, and even Scripture itself, I believe we must not be misled to interpret them contrary to the laws of God or contrary to the biblical historical record itself. So I'm trying to apply that principle as well as the principle of, of asking what I'm being required to believe. And one other piece that I've been trying to utilize or axiom or whatever in my studies has been to not and avoid any intention to interpret the New Testament, or excuse me, interpret the Old Testament by the New Testament. Rather, we need to interpret the New Testament by the Old Testament. Now, did I just say that the same way twice? <laughs> I'm just wondering if I did. Did anybody catch that? Anyway, uh, I didn't think you did. Need... No, I think okay. you got the two opposites. I got it correct. All right. Is that a, is that a good principle, Isaac? Do you think uh, that you know as you've been going on to uh, the way I look at it is if uh, you, you think about the 
the the people that the Israelites that were living uh, at the at the moment that Jesus was born, what did they have access to? Um, so everything they learned uh, from Jesus, or everything that he reminded them about that they should know, uh, was based on the information they had up to that point. So yeah. That's that's what I that's what I think. I think that it's Old Testament first, and that um, frames the New Testament. Yeah, I uh, I had um, kind of started taking a tabulation at one point. Um, I think I was up somewhere. I don't even know where my notes are on that, but I think I was up to somewhere like fifty, sixty um, Old Testament references. I want to say that that was in Romans alone by the um, Apostle Paul. And that's no insignificant thing there, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and you have to, when you're reading the New Testament, start at least until the point that Jesus is crucified in the, the Gospels. You have to you have to read that recognizing that the New Testament did not exist. You're reading about something that didn't exist in that context that you're reading. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I think too. that I think the WRB is is an ingenious uh, key because if you uh, you preface these things with the we're required required to believe certainly puts it out there where you can understand it what we're talking about yeah yeah you know and i kind of i remember probably a year or so back i i told you guys that i had been kind of you know really trying to approach things from from that angle you know this is what one is required to believe and and yeah the key here is wrb we're required to believe and now each one of these, you know, in other words, I tried to keep the document short, so I used the abbreviation WRB instead of typing it out and taking it to a second line or whatever. So I tried to somewhat utilize that as a, as a key. But, um, yeah, so that's the basis of it. And as a result of studying this in it, I came up with a series of, of thoughts and uh, so forth. And I'll just go through them, I guess. I mean, it's quarter after here, and it, it'll take us a little bit to bust through them here real quick, so we better get at it. Um, number one, since closet seed liners insist that Satan is a fallen angel, what are we required to believe is the extent of its power? I think that's a legitimate question that one should ask, because... That's what the seed liners believe, is that he's a fallen angel. This is a this entity, or this thing called Satan, is a fallen angel. Secondly, if one is required to believe that Satan is not a fallen angel, then what would be the extent of its power if not a fallen angel? And that question, I think, has to be answered by the individuals in their study. Uh, one is required to believe that God is responsible for the evils of men because of his rebellious angel. Now, someone might take exception with that, uh, but the reason I put it in there is because 
well, wait a minute. If it is a rebellious angel, a fallen angel, why wouldn't we be able to attribute that to God and that that is what, you know, the where the ultimate responsibility would lie? And, and that's what it requires us to believe. Um, this one here, Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, it popped into my head, you know, one time. And there's many, 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 many scriptures that you'll find yourself as you go through the scriptures and you're going to go, wow, that's another one, just like we did last uh, couple weeks ago. And I said, well, there's another one to add to the list because you can read multiples of scriptures. I mean, I don't really have a specific scripture in most of these laid out like I do this one here with Proverbs to try to get the thinking going because there are many scriptures that you've got to look at and say, well, that scripture there makes no sense unless we're required to believe and then you fill in the, the balance of the, of the statement. And if these things that God hates, you know, a lying tongue, you know, and, and so forth, then you have to believe that, no, he, he, you know, he doesn't really hate them. If he does hate them, it's regard, uh, you know, it's a result of Satan and the grant of authority that was given him and not actual responsibility of man's evil. So, you know, again, I, I happened to have that one pop into my head, and so I kept it in my, my list as I was tallying things along as I was going along with the study. We're required to believe God created the malevolent being Satan. If not, then it has to be a rebellious fallen angel. And I don't know if everybody grasped the concept of that, but I was looking at it and thinking, I have to believe that God created the being. And so therefore that being is there to do all the things that I would believe that God created the being for. But if, if he didn't create that being, then naturally I have to concoct a new doctrine to say, well, it was a rebellious fallen angel. Are you following me? Um, when God said everything was good, he failed to tell us it really wasn't good, at least in heaven at one point. You know, God's told us a lot in this book. I see no reason why he wouldn't, he would feel the necessity to withhold from us that, hey, things aren't real peachy and king, uh, peachy king up, up, up in, in my heavenly dominion, where I hope to all have you all um, one day uh, fellowship with me. That just doesn't make sense. We're required to believe that Satan derived its rebellious character from this goodness spoken of by God. So if everything was good, then obviously this rebellious character of Satan was a result of something in the goodness of God. Does that make sense? Well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> It makes sense, but it doesn't make sense. Right. It is a loaded question. 
Um, we understand uh, what you're saying. Um, if if anybody had some particular ones that they would like to address, Isaac or Jeremiah or you, even you, Russell, you know, I guess I'd say let's kind of pinpoint onto those and, and, and expound upon them. And then I can kind of come back and continue with things here. I'm, I'm at that about uh, let me let me get to 15 here and then I'll open the door up. Um, uh, this rebellious, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. Uh, so number nine, we're required to believe that heaven is subject to temptation to rebel. Um, number eight, I guess I skipped. Um, when God finds it necessary to bring about evil, he's pleased to authorize Satan to do it for him. That, that just does not seem in the character of God from what I've read from Scripture. We're required to believe that heaven is subject to temptation to rebel. Um, I would rather believe in the goodness of God, and uh, he gave us a choice in which to rebel or not to rebel. We're made in his, his, in his image and character. And this rebellious condition must exist at this very day. We're required to believe that I, I'm, what what evidence would I have not to believe that? If if a, a rebellious condition existed at one time, what evidence do I have that that tells me that that condition does not still exist to to, to today? Go ahead. No, I was. That's what I was saying. I was agreeing with you. Yeah. The 11, those anticipating a heavenly home will be subject to becoming rebellious too. So we're required to believe that in our desire to have uh, everlasting life and a dominion with Christ uh, in a heavenly home where there's many mansions, um, that we would be subject to becoming rebellious. That, that really bothers me. Uh, we're required to believe that God's omniscience is defective, not knowing that obviously Satan would rebel. Uh, it would seem that if God were to know that Satan was to rebel and he was going to become the arch nemesis of both God and man, that he would have intervened to have not had that happen. Uh, I understand the, the ways of God are not man's. Um, it could be an invalid point. I'm, I'm open to people invalidating the points that I am making about what I see that one is required to believe. Um, Thirteen, we're required to believe God then decided to allow the rebellious angels to teach the rest of creation of men to rebel also. We're required to believe that God was either asleep or unaware of Satan or the serpent's intention, leaving Eve vulnerable and without adequate protection or even knowledge of how to diffuse such information, propaganda, if you will. Fifteen, this fallen angel, Satan, has unlimited life expectancy. We're required to believe that it has 
unlimited life expectancy until the day in which the closet seed liners say that he will be bound in chains and thrown into a pit. Anybody have anything they want to particularly get to or things that spoke to you particularly? I might as well finish that page. God, uh, we're required to believe, 16, God uh, provides no distinction for men to be able to distinguish Satan from any other celestial angel. That one may not be understood by everybody, what my thoughts were on that. Um, think about the, the story of the garden. Basically, we have no information in the biblical record where God provided any information for men, specifically Adam and his wife Eve, to distinguish this um, the Satan from any other celestial angel. So, in other words, if there were another celestial angel walking in the garden that talked of good things and and uh, uh, in, in, embodied the goodness of God and then this other one Satan there's nothing that I see that God provided in the biblical record that one would be able to make a distinguishing uh, make a make a distinction between the two celestial beings if you will and and I I grappled with that question thought about it wrote it down as a thought. Um, we're required to believe Satan and a third of the angels have made billions of men sinful. And God, on the other hand, has only procured one to be sinless. And of course, he had an advantage, you know, we might say. All right, before I go to page two, I'll see if anybody has any comments on page one or you want to specifically address some things that... I think... I think some of the most, and I think a lot of these on this page are very important, but I think one of the more important ones, 12 and 13, we have to believe... God is not omniscient, and we also have to believe that he also is not capable of or doesn't want to do anything about the rebellious angels or Satan. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's a hard one to, to try to wrap your head around, isn't it, Jeremiah, and, and live your life and say, I, I don't understand this. It, 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 it leaves you. Go ahead. We're asked, we're asked to participate in idolatry. If, if we go with the story we've been taught, we've got to believe there's two gods. And how else do you put the story together because everybody will say well he's seeking about the earth uh, to see who he can corrupt 
So that means all over the earth, right? Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And so through you believe the, that, through you, the, you know, you got to believe there's two gods. Yeah, and through the course of time, as I say, through the course of time, that's got to be pretty, you know, that's pretty perplexing that, you know, billions of people would have been taken captive by Satan, so to speak, and drawn into uh, everlasting punishment, if you will, and so forth, leaving, you know, I I understand, you know, wide is the way, narrow is the gate, but uh, it might have been better to say, um, you know, wide is the way and the gate is like the sieve, um, only letting the mustard seed through. Well, and... And Samuel 8, 8, like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forgotten me and served other gods. So that's a, uh, that's a, that's just what we do, I guess. When we get success, we forget how we got it, and we start serving other gods. And this uh, this one just happens to be one of them. He's the biggie, isn't he? Yeah. And number eighteen um, dovetails off of seventeen, being that Satan and the third of the angels have made billions of men sinful, and and. God has procured only one, <clears throat> number 18, we're required to believe it is God who approves and sanctions it. And that's what I found myself doing as I, I look at these things and it's like, well, then God is approving of this. It, it's it's his fallen angel. If he didn't create it, then then it's his, his rebellious angel. And, you know, I think I get to that later on here as well, is that, you know, he destroyed a, a greater portion of the earth in a flood, uh, in a, a given geographical, and if we go with the closet seed liners, then it, it is a worldwide flood. And so the worldwide flood was incapable of taking out uh, this serpent, Satan, devil, um, that existed in the garden. So I don't understand how they can have both positions held in their mind. Um, 19, we're required to believe since God approves and sanctions this, Satan is an instrument of God. See, this is how I kept focusing and asking these things. And so then I said here in 19, but wait, he was thrown down. Well, which is it? Does does God approve and sanction this because it, he, he, this Satan is a is a creation and an instrument of God, or did he actually fall and he's really not an instrument of God, and therefore is doing whatever it does? But by the same token, 
God is obviously approving, approving and sanctioning it. And it, it just it keeps on creating more and more difficulty every time I continue to attempt to ascertain what I'm being required to believe. 20, God must have decided this being could be useful. Uh, Question when? You know, I'm saying God's revealed quite a bit to us in his word. I really don't understand why he wouldn't have revealed to us that he decided that this fallen angel could become useful to him. Where? You know, where did he record this decision for us to, to let us know what we're up against? He tells us a lot of things about what we're up against with our own individual innate um, genetic makeup, if you will. But he doesn't tell us about... In other words, you're in the garden and this thing happens, then why doesn't God at that time record that he's decided to let this serpent go ahead and do and be a useful instrument for him for whatever the purpose is. He, he simply doesn't do that. He doesn't record that at all. And that brings up 21. Well, then Satan and God are thus campaigning for our souls. And I happen to come up with that during election time. I got to thinking of it that way. Boy, they're they're out here, you know, vying for our souls. And um, uh, knowing what I know about vote counters, uh, human vote counters, I, I really began to wonder who's counting the votes in this situation. Well, may not have made sense to some, but. We're required to believe this is totally ethical and completely within God's righteousness. We're required to believe God, although wanting to draw men unto him, is really enjoying being divided against himself. That's what we're required to believe. We're required to believe Satan as a fallen angel is permitted to cause and incite sin. Twenty-five, are we to believe that Satan has any authority or command over weather or any other natural evils? Where is it recorded? Well, somebody might retort, well, no, he has whatever he has and is able to do whatever he does only at the authority and at the commission of God. Okay, well, then let's go back a few and let's ask some of those questions again about what we're required to believe. And the big one for me that finally seemed to really mean a lot to me was the fact of being divided against himself. And especially as I thought on those words that God himself, Christ, God in the flesh, his only begotten son, he himself said, that he would be divided against himself. We're required to ignore the character of God desires obedience, not sacrifice. In other words, the scripture clearly says, you know, do I desire obedience? 
not sacrifice. We're required to reject his character or nature anticipates reform in lieu of punishment. I mean, this is exactly the character of God. He wants us to reform when we are in con, when we act contrary to the creator's will. We know three times in the book of Genesis that God repented of having created man. But we're required to believe that God never repented of casting Satan to earth. We're also required to believe that God never repented of creating angels who would rebel against him. I know of no scripture that says that, that it repented God of casting Satan to earth to do this evil to mankind. Are you guys aware of a scripture that did that? Nope. Nope. 30, we're, re- we're required to ignore Genesis 6, 5, 11, 6, 18, 20, 19, 12 to 13, Four times in 15 chapters following Adam and Eve's disobedience, it repented God that he had made man. I stand corrected. It's four times, not three times. We're required to reject David at Psalm 73, envy the prosperity of the wicked. This happened to be another scripture that I'd been reading probably at the time I was doing this, and it popped into my head and said, you know, that is something. David never envied, you know, the fallen angel, Satan, demon, devil, Satan. He he envied, he almost envied the prosperity of the wicked is how the scripture reads. Because they seem to have so much prosperity in their wickedness. And David just kept it in his mind that they will once they will one day have their reward and David lived for and believed in the reward that he would have for trying to stay within the will of the Father and the Creator. We're required to fear Satan in pursuit of vice because that's what the church world has done is they want you to fear Satan. And so they tell you that if you do this and you do that, you do these evil, you do that evil, you know, uh, Satan's going to get you. And isn't that a requirement to fear Satan rather than God? In fearing God in pursuit of virtue? Yeah, that one's pretty pretty interesting since it says so many times throughout the bible fear god yeah and this just flips it right around and then the the whole movement lately over the last several dozen years by the some of the churches to uh make people believe that you know god is just all love and he loves everything and everything everyone does but watch out for that bad guy satan 
who's going about seeking who he can devour. All over the earth. Huh? All over the universe. Yeah. On his belly. Uh, we're required, uh, yeah, very good, uh, very good segue. We're required to ignore what is recorded in Genesis 3. How and in what manner did the serpent that was cursed to go on its belly grow legs to walk up and down in the earth at the time of Job? Um, This was one of the things that really began to knock me around as I wrestled with since I believe, as I recall, I think Satan is mentioned in the book of Job, I want to say 13 uh, or 16 times. It's a, it's a fairly significant number. It escapes me right now the exact number. But um, I found myself going, how, now how does this happen? He's been cursed to go on his belly in Genesis 3, but he's talking with God in the book of Job and expresses to God that that he's been walking up and down in the earth. And I I found that how, I don't get that. I don't get yeah, that. that one, I had read something um, a couple of months ago uh, that, that said that, you know, outside of the Bible, it said that Job is considered by a lot of scholars to be the oldest book the first written book, and it also was saying how Job is not described as an Israelite anywhere. And I thought that was, I don't know if it's true, but I thought it was interesting. And I did reread it and didn't see that he was, that it mentioned where, uh, uh, like what tribe that, uh, he came from. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, and they supposedly can... use the, the, you know, the original transcripts and which words were used and how it was written, you know, the form of the characters and all of that stuff to place it in a timeline relative to all of the other writings. Uh, so, but but I think that's interesting if it were true um, that, they, that that Satan would be described in those terms. Exactly, yeah, because I struggled with that too, knowing and understanding that Basically, the way I recall it, I could grab my, uh, see if there was anything in my um, Haley's on a time frame for the Book of Job, or I can do an internet search quick. But uh, yes, understanding that it is considered perhaps the oldest of the books, may even predate Moses, um, and the books written up or penned at least by Moses. Um, and yeah, that's a really, really important part to recognize too when you're talking about when was this written? Like, was it written before everything else? Just because something was written first or last does not mean that it was uh, being transmitted verbally in that order. Exactly. And um, it could be um, that Job is uh, very significantly, I, I know that uh, uh, there's even commentaries that, that refer to Job as being uh, 
uh, I don't want to say maybe I am to say it. I, I was going to say poetic um, that it was uh, written more um, along the lines of, of the lesson of teaching how the loss of all things and so forth uh, could still lead to prosperity in the end. Um, again, I don't know the value that I had. And as I say, we can throw some of these out. I'm perfectly happy to throw some of them out. But as I'm telling you, these are just things that I thought of. There's a whole bunch of scriptures that as you go through scripture, you're going to be scratching your head saying, you know what, this goes on what you're required to believe list. So it's not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. And so, yes, one could conceivably, and I think that's why some of the people are trying to take the book of Job and the use of the term Satan, although it is not a proper noun anywhere in the book of Job, I think that that is one of the reasons why they're trying to utilize Job to say that this is a heavenly council situation, da-da-da-da-da, uh, and, and to me, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it at all. And, and mainly because the counsel that I see in the book of Revelation is the 12 that are to sit on the 12 thrones. So it is my understanding from the biblical record that the purpose of commissioning Israel to, I like my phrase, whip the creation into uh, compliance. Um, that is why, in the end, those 12 sitting on the 12 thrones are judging the creation. So I don't get the whole divine counsel thing when I'm being told, and actually I just scrolled down and saw 38, uh, which is what I have there at 38, so we'll touch on that in a second. So this all, like I say, 33, if we got to throw it out, we can throw it out. Um, but I think we've got a lot of things that we're required to believe, 34, without any record how and why, in what manner does Satan sit on the counsel of God. We've got a lot of information about who and why and so forth are going to sit on thrones of God with God. So why not put some record here about why and in what manner Satan sits on a council, right? We're required to reject everywhere we can see God's work throughout the creation, confirmed by science and observation, but we can only see Satan's work when we look at man and his rejection of God's work. We're required to believe Satan's desire is to cause men to resist God's will. How can this be the serpent's punishment of Genesis 3 when this is what he wants to do? It gets to do what it wants to do, yet Adam gets to grow amongst weeds. Eve gets to be subjected to her husband and have pain in childbirth, and Satan gets to sit on a council of God. We're required to believe, as the biblical record reflects, Adam and Eve were put out from the presence of God, Cain also, but the fallen angel, serpent, devil, Satan, he's put on a heavenly council. 
we're required to believe that Christ was mistaken when he said the apostles were to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We're required to reject the jealousy exhibited by Cain at Genesis 4 as if Abel had just transferred to himself the birthright and all its attendant dignities. Unbridled jealousy, which was to be the seed of sinful desire, lust of the flesh, of Cain to the detriment of Abel. And this is what we see. We see the sinful lust, desires of the flesh by other men to the detriment of Isaac, Jeremiah, Doug, Russell, The doctrine requires one to reject God-provided Cain, that is the serpent seed of Satan and Eve, according to the seed liners, a sevenfold protection from anyone seeking to slay him instead of God slaying him himself. Now, I have heard seed liners take this one here and just pass it off and just move right on But I don't know how you reconcile with a sevenfold protection for a conjugal union of the serpent with Eve resulting in the offspring Cain and get a sevenfold protection. You gotta really play the grace card. I don't know what card you could play. Uh Inconsistent, too. Yeah, the inconsistent card would probably be more like it. We're required to believe Nakash of... Go ahead. And so can you understand where people have said this this book doesn't make sense to me? Exactly. Yeah. Because if 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 you critically think at all you have to have some issue here to believe the doctrine as presented. And Either one of them. If you take the position, what difference does it make? You can sell right through this thing, can't you? Absolutely. I, I guess if it makes no difference, then why was it even there? You just lie to yourself and say it makes no difference. Because yeah, that's I mean, another well, way of saying this is this doesn't make sense. It and I should understand it. So what difference does it make? Why don't we just tear it out or start our Bible at a different place? Amen. We're required to believe Nakash of Genesis three was a celestial or a fallen angel taken on some form in which to engage Eve in some conjugal act which resulted in, in her insemination of the seed of the serpent and the offspring of and the offspring uh oh, wait a minute I, I read that really bad let's see we're required to believe nakash of genesis 3 was a celestial or fallen <coughs> angel taken on some form in which to engage eve in some conjugal act which resulted in her insemination 
of the seed of the serpent and the offspring of Cain, the progenitor of the race or the seed of the devil. That's a mouthful. I hope everybody understands. And basically, we've got Eve being uh, inseminated, Cain is the offspring, and Cain is the progenitor of the race or the seed of the devil for all the future from there on out. We're required to believe this knockoff of Genesis 3 is a fallen rebellious angel who took a third of the angelic host with it and now is the arch enemy of God in a battle with him and man. We're required to believe so important was this unholy and unlawful conjugal union that God really says nothing at all, recorded really nothing at all supporting it. We're required to believe Eve committed the most lewd form of bestiality, fornication, fornication imaginable. We're required to believe God was negligent in his instruction to Adam by not advising he be aware of the serpent, they have old Satan in the garden, instead of a tree with fruit in the midst of the garden. What Doesn't that seem like a more important instruction? Yeah, yeah that's maybe, pretty ridiculous. Maybe it's, just, maybe it's just me, you know. We're required to believe whatever Eve did with this serpent, devil, Satan, Nakash, Adam did also. But when you ask a seed liner, well, what did Adam do? Did he have a homosexual encounter with the serpent? Uh, There really is not much of a response other than he didn't have to have anything that he did. The fact that he accepted Eve means that He, therefore, was tainted by the same taint. Makes no sense. We're required to believe the serpent of Genesis 3 is immortal and works endlessly and tirelessly against God and man. We're required to believe a serpent, which is, our, in our observation, proved, goes upon its belly, was cursed by God to go on its belly all the days of its life. We're required to believe the biblical statement all the days of its life implies, infers, or means immortal, as our observations prove to us, all life has an end. We are required to believe after Eve's unholy union with Satan, serpent, Nakash, Adam somehow engaged in the same act. We're required to believe Adam's acceptance of Eve bound him. That's the thing I was referring to. Seed miners basically say, well, well, he, Adam didn't. Adam didn't have to do anything, even though the scripture says, you know, and I didn't write that in here, and that should be written in here. We'd have to reject that statement where it says that Eve gave to her husband, and he did eat also. So we're required to believe that since Adam accepted Eve in her state of fornication, that he therefore was part and parcel of the of the crime and didn't actually have to engage in any fornicating act with the serpent. That's what we're told to believe. And the thing, part here about God's law against fornication, bestiality, you can't tell me that God did not have a law against fornication or bestiality at the time that he created Adam 
and subsequently took from Adam a rib and created Eve. You cannot tell me or get me to believe that he did not already have a law regarding bestiality. You must think I'm really stupid and just fell off the turnip truck. We're required to believe Yahweh himself at Genesis 4, 6, and 7 appears to be ignorant of the wicked serpent offspring of Eve and Satan, that is Cain, that he actually tried to reason with it, expecting it to do good. I've even heard one of those seed liners say on this right now, well, God expects everybody to do good, but they can't because they're of the serpent seed. They can't do good. Now, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? God knows that that this offspring just can't do good, and yet God's going to sit there and say, hey, come on now. Why are you so dejected? You know, if you do good, won't you be accepted? But, you know, if you're going to keep this attitude up, you know, it, it's going to get the better of you, and it will lead to sin. There's just no point to give that instruction to this this offspring. Go ahead. He's not a very sharp God, if that's the case. It's insulting, isn't it? It's totally uh, insulting and blasphemous. I tell you what, I believe that it is. It is blasphemous, and I think every one of those teachers that continue to teach this ought to be called exactly that. They blaspheme our God. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the whole idea is offensive. It's completely offensive. You know, that the the idea that Eve would have done this and that God would have uh said, Well, she's she's yours, tough luck. And then and then have a flood. Let me back up. And then after that and then he kills one of the, you know, one of the good guys, so to speak. Certainly God received Abel's sacrifice. And then he kills it, and God doesn't just instantly destroy with a blow pain. You know, as I say, the only, uh, that, that question always bothered me for the longest time until I did read in the book of Jasher, and whether the Jasher can be, you know, it's clearly you know, mentioned in Scripture, so it, it certainly has no reason not to be canonical. Um, but there's some information there that sheds some light that apparently Cain did repent. But boy, I wouldn't want to say that too loudly because somebody would say that I'm a, I'm a Cain lover, you know. If that is the reason why that God extended him grace was because of that, that's his business. That's not mine. But I do know this much. He gave him sevenfold protection. He did, you know, send him on his way. We're required to believe God, knowing this serpent offspring couldn't do good, according to the seed liner, being a serpent seed, tried to encourage it. I said, I said, making Yahweh double-minded or rather insane. We're required to believe Yahweh so despised the serpent son Cain that after having killed his brother, Abel got, gave him sevenfold protection, 
We're required to believe Paul did not correctly understand Genesis 2.24, that a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh, because he stated in 1 Corinthians 6.16, Know you not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body, for the two, says he, shall be one flesh. Well, in the same instance then, what was Eve? Joined with the serpent. And they would be one flesh. That means that every offspring from Eve, from that point on, are still of the one flesh. Am I wrong? I mean, you know, so then we're all sons of the serpent. We're required to believe Eve had a conjugal union with a serpent or some wide creature other than Adam. Therefore, she is at once joined with it. We're required to believe the Jewish record of the Talmud and the Kabbalah that Adam with Lilith and Eve with the serpent continued to spawn offspring from these lewd and insidious interpretations of Genesis 3. We're required to believe God was simply indifferent and sympathetic to the unholy union, the fornication, and its serpent seed Cain, regardless of his later view of Jacob Israel's fornication. You see, he changed. God changed. That fornication in the garden, that, 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 that's no big deal. But boy, I tell you what, that, those children of Israel, I am so sick of their fornication. I'm going to punish them. What I'm required to believe. Yeah, I think that one is a pretty good argument. Because there's so much of the book is, is, is focused on God's... Uh, disapproval of, of of what Jacob Israel had done and we know that's that's true it's in there it's in the book but then there's nothing about this earlier instance it just doesn't make sense doesn't make sense we're required to believe that Cain is a genetic mutation or evil seed if you will but this belief requires us to reject God himself attributed to the disposition of Cain Genesis 4, 6, and 7, was controllable, and if not, sin, that is, his desire to sin, would rule Cain as opposed to Cain ruling and mastering it, the sin. Disobedient sin is the transgression of the law. The Word of God clearly identifies very early the two manifestations of humanity's innate characteristics, good and evil, or more specifically, righteousness and unrighteousness, and we might also say obedience to the command and disobedience to the command. We have to believe the unholy conjugal union of Eve with the serpent brought about the evil, and evil, therefore, must rest with the serpent. This isn't borne out scripturally, nor is it borne out by man's experience, including Cain's, as Paul conveys. We're required to reject the biblical record at Hebrews 11.4 by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Cain's genes were not deficient. His offering was without faith. We're required to reject the conveyance of law and command. Do not begin with Abraham, as we see it evident at God's instruction to Adam at the event of the offering at Genesis 4, 3 through 5. 
We have to reject it with Adam who was driven from the garden with these words, <laughs> lest he put forth his hand and take of the tree of life. The tree of life and Christ, God and Christ are one. You lose access. You lose fellowship with God in disobedience. Disobedience, sin's penalty, must be paid. We're required to reject Revelation 22.2 records that 12 manner of fruit come from the tree of life. God manifested to man the manner of righteousness by conveying its principles to Abraham and his descendants, confirmed at Genesis 26.5, Exodus 19.16 through Exodus 24, and in detail in all of the books of the law, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're required to reject disobedience to the command instruction, the law or word of God is the transgression. It is sin to the created. It was unlawful or contrary to the command of God for Eve and thus Adam to eat or partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. End of story. Disobedience to the command. I don't care whether it was fruit or figs or rotten fruit. That's just the way the story is relayed. The point is of the story, disobedience or obedience. We're required to reject Genesis 4.25. Adam knew his wife and she bare Seth, which is the same language used in Genesis 4.1 to record she bear Cain. We're required to reject Genesis 5-4 that Seth was begotten by Adam as a seed line theology claims. These scriptures, at least Genesis 4-1, do not mean what they convey and has no double witness. Now that's a little harder for somebody to understand without some explanation. Genesis 4-1, the seed liners have to say is a problem, and they do, that Genesis 4.1 has no double witness, they claim, in Scripture, that Genesis 5.4 says Seth was begotten by Adam is proof, you see, that Seth is begotten by Adam. But since Cain, it is not said, was begotten by uh, Adam, then therefore, Cain is not begotten by Adam. Well, that is such a stupid argument and so full of ridiculousness. We're required to believe the mark or identifier put on Cain of Genesis 4.15 was not upon Cain only so he would not be killed since God had extended him grace by not executing him. But rather, that mark exists upon all of Cain's descendants. And we're required to believe that God could not or would not destroy this serpent seed at his birth, after murdering Abel, or at the time of the flood, but rather let him live to be an instrument of evil and wickedness upon the rest of Adamic man. Isn't that what we're required to believe?
We're required to ignore the biblical record in Genesis 4.8 and Hebrews 11.3 and John 3.13 that conveys Cain's deeds were wicked. We're required to ignore nowhere in Genesis 4 or 5 as God given any instruction whereby we learn the sons of God are not to marry daughters of men, offspring of Cain, serpent sons or serpent daughters. Now that one again needs some explanation because you see, when we get to Genesis 6, there's the story that we have. Giants in the land went to the daughters of men. Okay, so we have to ignore that nowhere did God tell us, Genesis 4 or 5, that there was any instruction that sons of God, being, I guess, Adam, were not to marry daughters of men, offspring of Cain, serpent sons, or serpent daughters. You see, I have to have some understanding in order to glean their interpretation of Genesis 6. I know that could use some more expansion, but don't have time. We're required to believe. So important was this intermarrying with the serpent seed that by the time of Genesis 6, man's wickedness in this regard was such that it repented God that he'd made man. Now that ought to explain number 73 in and of itself we're required to believe so important was this intermarrying with the serpent seed, uh, 75, consider that nowhere in the Bible do we find repeated admonitions and warnings about a race or a seed or of serpent people who would possess and wield near supernatural power, if not near supernatural control upon Adam's descendants or all of the inhabitants of creation. We're required to reject that the Israelites were told to go into the lands and displace the people because of their wickedness, Deuteronomy 9.5, not Satan. We're required to reject nowhere in the Bible will you find repeated admonitions and warnings of billions of readers of the biblical record will die because Eve has been inseminated by a fallen angel. Rather, Genesis 2.17 states, in the day that thou partake thereof, disobeys thereof, thou shalt surely die. Death was a consequence of the action taken, not a consequence of an offspring. Seedliners require us to believe the trees in the garden represent people or person, but always imply the person, trees, are pre-Adamic types or fallen angels. However, never is there any information supplied from the biblical record which conveys this. And they can't just use trees in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 31 because the trees in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 31 were brought down. What one has to believe is these first recorded acts of sin, disobeying the command and instruction of God, was actually someone or something else's fault. That old serpent, the devil, Satan. But of course, it's only the seed liners that want you to believe that. The closet seed liners, while not professing to believe in a conjugal union of Eve with Satan occurred, still hold to the belief without biblical support it is a fallen angel who beguiled Eve, thus they inadvertently cast blame 
essentially refused to accept it was Adam, Eve, and Cain who disobeyed the command or the will of God. It is known as the law of sin and death. We're required to believe God again is not omniscient because he did not know Abel was not Cain's brother. Genesis 4, 9-11. What we have to believe is it could not be the simplicity of the command not to partake or eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I have some other thoughts then that I rounded out with and concluded that thesis, which turned out to be 80 of them. Was it 81? 81. So, did, does this give us additional tools to work with as we try to share with people uh, a, a better perspective or understanding of this doctrine that has evolved in the church world? Or did we just make it worse? Or did, did we gain, gain some more tools? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. It's, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't understand the idea of what you're saying or calling a closet seed liner would be pretty um, prevalent among Christianity, right? Uh, the group of people that are seed liners, you know, that's a pretty small, I, I think that it's a pretty small group of people. I'm not sure how many people I meet on a regular basis that proclaim that or profess that. I, I know I have in the past for sure, uh, but not, not uh, in my regular circles, you know. But I think that is still all very applicable to the uh, closet seed liner group. Yeah, and uh, that's the thing that started to really, I guess, weigh heavy on me as I got to thinking, you know, again, as I say, I think I've said to you, is the closet seed liner I understood was a small proportion, but then the more I got to thinking about it, I thought, you know, the vast majority of the church world has become the closet seed liner because they inadvertently have to believe much of the same thing without holding to the same actual view. Um, or I don't even know if I want to say view, but um, they hold to a lot of the same the same principal components that comprise it. Um, yeah, just, yeah, and it's, it it's all, just, all ends up revolving around uh, where the desire to sin comes from, that it's an external force that we can't do anything about, right? And the, the yeah, seed liner and that, interpretation. And, I, and that is dangerous, I thought, or more dangerous than the misguided understanding of the seed liner. Yeah, yeah, for sure. More people are going to uh, miss out on salvation 
a much larger group of people are going to miss out on salvation because of, or or at least be very misled for a long time because of uh, uh, that that understanding, holding that false understanding. And would even have that salvation tainted by a belief that they need to believe this or they're going to be destined to something that we haven't even addressed. But it's the it's the other part of this and that's the you know, the burning hell forever and ever part. So that's what's happening to that part of the church world that has had the interpretation or the doctrine know, peddled to them, that is the dangerous and very destructive part. Just uh, very, very disconcerting to consider what has been happening to a great number of individuals. Because my point is, is that therefore your salvation doesn't have the beauty that surrounds what God is trying to totally convey to us. Rather, it's, it's, it's a salvation by a force, if you will. It's some ulterior motive that, that drives you to, to it besides the beauty of his grace. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. It is all a really interesting sleight of hand, though, the way all these pieces, uh, this false narrative, even beyond what you talked about today, fit together to make this kind of uh, perfect, imperfect picture of how how you should uh, interpret our world. You know, that uh, Satan is going to cause you to sin no matter what you do. You can't do anything about it, so just go ahead and keep on doing that. But kind of maybe feel sorry for it a little bit. Ask for repentance. God will forgive you. And it seems like a neat little design to make sure you keep on being evil. <laughs> keep keep doing uh, doing bad things. And keep your back turned to God. That's a really interesting thought because that that's essentially what it is. It, it yeah, it, it takes away the goodness and and says, "Oh, I'm just this imperfect being. I, I can't do any of it. I just will seek repentance, and and in the end, everything's going to be okay for me." Yeah, and it 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 neutralizes maybe the the greatest gift or one of the greatest gifts that that Jesus provided. Absolutely. Right, it totally neutralizes it and says, "Well, that's that's trash. You don't need that. You didn't need that because God's just going to forgive you anyway." You know, he didn't need to really sacrifice himself uh because well you're just a natural sinner. It's not even your fault. Exactly. So kind of just trashing that that gift that is supposed to be the greatest thing that we that we have. 
Yeah, I agree. Well, which uh, which if any did you? Uh, Russell sent me a note indicating he had to get out, and so he's left uh, the uh, fellowship. Anything particular that you had, uh, um, either you or Jeremiah, on this that you wanted to expound on and try to make some key thoughts about? Or did you have some that you wanted to add, either of you? No, none to add right now. Um, a lot of the a lot of the later ones, you know, like thirty plus, roughly, I think are pretty strong arguments. Um, some of the earlier ones, you know, I'm thinking about people. You know, uh, the way people mislead other people. Um, a person can drive another person to sin. Uh, and so I don't know I don't know why the type of creature that that is, whether it's a human or it would be a fallen angel or whatever you want to make up, why that would change the fact that one creature can make another creature to sin or convince another creature to sin. Um, and then that's even more powerful when you think of say you know there are all kinds of parents raising innocent children in terrible ways and they're going to mis misguide those children for various through various means uh and that mis so, so people can do that to one another and we know they can do that to one another um so I think you could, if you wanted to, you could extend uh, that same capability to another, uh, you know, to an angel or whatever you want to do, if you, whatever you want to make up, and um, then you've got to you've got to resolve all of those points that you made with in, in that context. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but but regardless, yeah. I, I I don't believe that interpretation whatsoever about. Genesis. I don't. It's not there. You have to make it up on your own, and then decide to believe it. So, so. Yeah, or be told it and believe it because it's what you've always been told. So. Yeah. Uh, I don't really have anything to. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Jeremiah. I was just going to say, I don't really have anything that I can think of at the time that I would add to it or anything, but I still can't get past as we continue on. You know, there's so many situations where you have to wonder why God didn't do something or why he didn't know something was happening. Yeah, it's uh, which I think that's one of the most I, important parts. And that's why I because think if I you really can't get past that, that, then you can't. You can't. Uh, you can't go any farther with this uh, belief. I would agree with that. 
and that's why I think I have really been trying to think about how in my studies what I'm being required to believe so in in so many of these things whether it's rapture whether it's you know all of these doctrines that we've you know Jeremiah you obviously don't know all of them but I man in my lifetime the number of doctrines that have come out of the organized churches from 1960 to 2000 was unbelievable really was unbelievable and nearly if not all of those doctrines that have been in that 50-year period of time and they didn't just occur at at 60, I might even say for the century, meaning 1900 to 2000, the number of doctrines that were developed uh, that actually have nearly all been disregarded and completely found out to be fallacious, um, it's really astounding. And what a waste of the magnificence of the truth of God's word that is available to us and was available to us. What a waste, a waste of time, waste of energy, waste of, uh, of so much opportunity. And it kind of, as we look at it in America, considering ourselves to be a educated Western society, uh, to see the condition that we're in in America today, you, you say, wow, could we have, you know, directed our minds more toward the Word of God and the truth in it instead of the false doctrines that have been proven false now? What could we have done to advance the kingdom of Christ in the United States instead of losing it? as it appears that we're on the precipice of doing. So, um, well, I enjoyed it. And I, I, as I went through my Bible studies, I, I just kept a notebook, a couple of pages, and I just kept adding to the thoughts that I had as I went along. And as I say, I'm not ready to go into the New Testament part of this right now. Um, uh, there, there is a lot to digest in the New Testament where these terms are used, Satan, devil, and uh, demons even. Um, so there's a lot that has to be done to really fully review it and I've spent a good bit of time already on this portion of it so um, you know some might say well you've obviously chickened out on the New Testament then and so therefore uh, perhaps your argument isn't as strong as you think it is well I don't believe so uh, I don't believe so at all I think that uh, um, with sufficient time and so forth and resources expended on it um, I think I could do a, a significant um, job on 
providing a appropriate interpretation and get to a biblical understanding of these terms in the New Testament. Um, but it will take time and it will take energy. So, um, I really have some other things that I'm trying to do and want to do. Uh, one of the things that I've always believed that we need to do is we need to get to a series of fellowships uh, really getting into the into the laws of God um, and get an understanding of how they apply to today and, and, and general examples and so forth that we can apply them to. I think it would be a good thing to do. I've wanted to do it for years. Oh, I, I know I talked to Pastor Peters uh, about that same thing. Um, but that's an, that's another undertaking, you know. I mean, these things are not just easy. They're not just, it takes some thinking, some critical thought, and some time to do it justice. You know, people can go out and just swing and hit and, and you know, that's not the way I, I want to do it if I'm going to take something on. So um, I don't know what you think. I'm working on something that I, I'm actually preparing. I'd like to put it into a booklet. So it could be a, a book that I would say that I'm putting the manuscript on. I think the information that you've talked about so far uh, can be, maybe even has to be taken in the context of the Old Testament uh, and what people understood at the time, at, at that time, prior to Jesus' birth. Uh, or you can at least think about it that way. Uh, all those, all those people, they had, they had these books or um, all this information from the Old Testament, even if it was, uh, you know, some verbal and some written down. And um, so what you've provided so far, if it's correct, maps to the information that they had. So even if different, even if God provided new information to people after or during the life of Jesus and afterwards, that's not information that people had prior. So I don't think you necessarily have to finish the New Testament portion of it in order to understand that, to, to validate the Old Testament portion of it. It, it may be that in the New Testament there's new information that like, maybe there's something that says, yeah, this this thing does exist, but it's, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's maybe, maybe it exists and it has a different function or something like that than, than what we're being told today, or maybe it doesn't exist at all. It's, but it doesn't really matter in terms of what people understood of the Old Testament. You've, you've provided that information. So why would those people that were alive at that time, um, why would God not have provided them the full information that they needed in order to live righteously? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, and and along that thought of what you're conveying is um, uh, my my initial reaction to many of the things that appear to be different or contrary or like you say a, a different time with new information. Um, I'm convinced it had a lot to do with the beliefs of the people at that time. Yeah. So in the time of Christ, what appears to be new to us is really not new. It's actually relayed through the writings in direct relationship to what people believed at the time. And so it's reflected in the writing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And so being reflected in the writing does not necessarily mean that it's it's a new thing, as, as you kind of put it, too, but rather we have to understand it within the confine and the context of the writing of that day and the beliefs of that day. I am absolutely convinced it has... Uh, probably 99%, I mean, it would be 100%, obviously. It would have everything to do with the context of the time and and so forth. But I guess you get my point is that, obviously, we have to, we have to know more about that day and time and the beliefs of that time. And much of Christ's responses to different individuals or different situations and so forth has to do with their beliefs. You can tell that as you critically think through why is this asked, why is this said, why is it recorded? You know what I mean? Yep. There there must be something that precipitates why it's actually necessary to be said or why it was necessary to be recorded and why it was necessary that you know, it was discussed at all. And I think when, so that, you know, obviously people study this stuff for years and years and years. And, you know, one might look at me and say, well, I don't know what, you know, credentials you have that makes you think that you somehow got a, got a beat on, you know, somebody who spent 20 or 30 years studying writings and language and all these other things that are pertinent to it. And I could have some kind of a better handle on it than than they do, um, you know. Well, sometimes uh, all of that studying helps, and other times you get indoctrinated and you can't see what's in front of you. And it doesn't. It's not just the Bible. It's any kind of profession you want to talk about. You know, you can have some upstart learn some topic or some skill or industry and do some something in a new way because they haven't been indoctrinated, right? So that doesn't mean that you're always right, though. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it means that there's well, value. There's still value there. Right. So, and again, I, I wear it on my shoulder. I say all the time, you know, if yeah. something that somebody feels the need to step in and say, well, let's make a correction on this or let's consider whether a correction is needed on this or whatever. Um, yeah, we, we're big enough to be able to say, okay, and uh, back up and regroup and, and see where, where it's lacking. So, 
Uh, I will leave it at that, I guess, for tonight's fellowship then, and trust that uh, wherever it goes, it will be fruitful for the years of those that might hear it. So I'm going to put the whole thing up in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you uh, for all that you've provided me in these many, many weeks that led up to this um, series of weeks of fellowships that we've had on this uh, subject of the seed line and closet seed liner doctrine of devil and I uh, pray, Father, that you misinterpret, misunderstand, uh, attempt to go outside beyond your word, uh, beyond the confines of the word. Any way to ever deceive or intend to deceive anybody with regards to these matters. Father, I do pray that wherever it goes, that it would find your blessing with it, that it would be fruitful and beneficial to those that would have opportunities to uh, absorb the information in it. Father, I so much that. You have worked in me I am the initiative to study some of this out. Father, if I am deceived, I pray that you the doors, the guidance required, I be led back to the truth and wherever that individual will be that door of that understanding so that I will be open and receptive to receive it so that those here that have fellowship with me and endured it with it blessed as they continue to others and try to use it as a tool in their arsenal for these truths of to understand Old Testament doctrine. So, Father, I thank you for everything that worked in me and that these messages for them. Amen. All right. Good night, guys. Good night. Thanks for joining. Good night, all. Yeah, thank you. Good night.